So, um, over the last two weeks, um, we've been looking at emotions using the Pixar movie Inside Out and the five emotions it animates as a guide. So two weeks ago, we looked at uh, sadness. Last week, Graham explored fear. And today, I'll be talking about anger. And in the next two weeks, we'll be looking at disgust and joy. So far, we've looked at how emotions give us an immediate response to situations and and how they can help guide us through the world. Does this work for anger, though? Well, first, let's look at how Inside Out sees anger. Uh, Just a moment, and I'll set Zoom up for playing this video. Okay. Now, you will have noticed in that clip that Lewis Black said that anger is all about getting the job done. Before we get into what the Bible says about the place of anger, I just want to share um, my own struggle with it, or a part of my own struggle with it. Very early on in uh, Mabel's and my marriage, I noticed that Mabel and I have very different ways of both getting angry and dealing with how we get rid of our anger. Like my dad, when I'm frustrated with something, I feel the need to blow off steam. So I get angry with whatever's frustrating me. I try to aim my anger at some inanimate thing, but I have to confess that sometimes I fail at that and aim it at people. And so I blow off the steam verbally. You stupid computer, how moronic is Microsoft? Might be the sort of thing that you hear quite a bit if you sat next to me for a while. Once I've blown off this steam, I'm good. And I don't have to worry about getting tempted to smash that stupid computer or do something even more extreme. The problem is that This anger management technique interacts badly with Mabel's way of getting angry and dealing with it. Unlike me, Mabel doesn't get frustrated quickly and blow it off quickly. She builds slowly and then simmers for a long time. The problem is that my letting off steam builds up her simmer. So I might be done with my steam release and be feeling happy and unburdened, but if Mabel's around, she's now simmering. Now, I'll have more to say about this in a moment, but but first, let's look at what the Bible says about anger. The main Bible reading for today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, and it's taken from Jesus' uh, radical new moral requirements that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So, Neil, do you want to read that on the screen there? Yep. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. 
So, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Okay. But does Jesus... Um, sorry, this, this, this passage, I, I find it such a shocking take on anger that we rarely take it seriously. I've seen many Christians speak to each other in anger and, and I've done it myself. But how often have we thought seriously about Jesus' claim that this is equivalent to murder? We always have excuses such as, yes, but they deserve it. They hurt me or they hurt these poor defenseless ones. But does Jesus allow such justifications? In this section of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking past laws and giving his own much stricter spin on them. He points out that previously someone who committed murder would be subject to judgment. And then he takes it further and replaces murder in the formula with merely being angry with someone. Another way of saying this is simply anger is an act of murder in the heart without the action of the hand. And there doesn't seem to be much room for excuses, does there? And, and I think that's confirmed by the rest of this passage. It, it expresses the urgency of dealing with such a dangerous heart condition. But this leaves us with a puzzling question. If anger is so bad, why does Jesus himself get angry? Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees when they want to prevent him healing on the Sabbath. In Mark 3, 5, it says, He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. He seems to get pretty angry with the money changers and sacrifice sellers that he kicks out of the temple too. And Jesus is not unlike his Father in heaven in behaving this way. We encounter God's wrath throughout the Bible. For example, in Judges 2, it says that they, Israel, abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to, the, to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them. How come it's okay for God to get angry? Perhaps if we can figure out what God is getting angry about, we might have a clue about how anger is supposed to work. Let's take a look. Now, I never knew this until I started preparing for this sermon, but God doesn't actually get angry according to the Bible, at Adam and Eve when they rebel against him. He's just disappointed. He doesn't get angry when Cain, consumed by his own anger, murders Abel. 
God floods the whole world in grief and regret, as we saw two weeks ago, but not in anger. He calmly disperses the idolatrous people from the Tower of Babel. He burns Sodom and Gomorrah because of the great outcry against their grave sins, not out of anger. And so on. The Bible records thousands of years of human history, outright rebellion against God's love and care. But it never records God getting angry until, until the first time that the Bible records God getting angry is when someone blocks his great plan of salvation. In fact, God's anger is first kindled against Moses. In Exodus 4, Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. This is the first time the Bible records this. All right, he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well. And look, he's on his way to meet you now. He will be delighted to see you. So what does this tell us about righteous anger? Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, has a profound insight into anger. He said, anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power and is not easy. The question, of course, is what is the right person, degree, time, purpose and way to be angry? Surely God defines what's right. Yeah? And yet the first biblical record of God's anger is directed against Moses. The second record of God's anger is in Moses' song of victory after Israel's delivery through the Red Sea and in that it describes God's wrath against Egypt which we saw in the plagues and the third time we hear of God's anger is in Israel's social justice laws and these warn against mistreating foreigners widows or orphans and God says if you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me then I will certainly hear their cry My anger will blaze against you and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. Now there's a pattern here and it continues through the rest of scripture. God's anger is directed at those who block his plan to bring human beings back into relationship with him. Much of the time it's Israel itself who's blocking God's plan. But when other nations threaten Israel's existence or lead it astray, God's wrath is revealed against them too. And this explains Jesus' anger as well. He doesn't get angry at the Romans, much to the confusion of his followers. Instead he gets angry at the Jews who are blocking God's work of redemption. Even Peter 
feels Jesus' anger when he tries to block Jesus' path to the cross where he would die to give us all a way back to God. See, it says, when Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things, heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're you're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So in the New Testament, as well as the Old, God always seems to be angry with those who thwart his work to redeem all human beings. He doesn't get angry simply with those who rebel against him, but rather with those who are blocking him from rescuing those who have rebelled against him. For example, in his letter to the Romans, Paul says of those who reject God's saving work in their own lives, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But this is in contrast to those who will receive God's mercy, those who don't block God's redemption of their souls. So let's take a step back and see what we've learned about God's anger. God doesn't get angry at people rebelling against him. Rather, he gets angry at those preventing him from drawing people back into relationship. God's Righteous anger, it seems, is not simply directed at injustice or unfairness. It's directed at only at those who obstruct his work of salvation for all people. Let me say that again because it's so unexpected, to me at least. God's righteous anger in the Bible is directed only at the obstruction of his work of salvation for all people. So that's God's anger. Let's turn now to human anger. Can we justify our anger over anything other than someone blocking God's salvation? I don't know. What does the Bible tell us? Proverbs offers wisdom on how anger works in human life. An angry person starts fights. A hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. There's lots of things like this in Proverbs. Now, remember that Jesus equated anger with murder. And the Apostle James exhorts his readers, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Why should we be slow to anger? Because human anger does not produce righteousness. As Proverbs says, it leads only to conflict and sin. As Jesus says, it's equivalent to murder. And yet, 
I'm sure you're all aware of a famous verse that many of us use to justify our anger as Christians. It's in a section of Paul's letter to Ephesus explaining how to live as a Christian. Here's the English Standard Version translation. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And here is the same two verses in the New Living Translation, the NLT. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. The NLT's translation gives quite a different impression, doesn't it? The ESV almost seems to be commanding anger, while the NLT is focused on the command to not sin. The ESV's beginning of the sentence, be angry, actually follows the Greek very literally. But in Greek, such a construct, such a structure, sentence structure, often means if you're angry. And that's what it means here, and that's how the NLT translates it. The point of this passage is for us to recognize that anger is a human emotion. And there are very rare occasions when it's warranted, such as when people are blocking God's plan of salvation. For example, preventing someone from hearing the gospel is cause for anger. But Paul says, even in this type of anger, we must be very aware that anger is deadly dangerous because anger gives a foothold to the devil. In fact, Paul is so concerned about this danger that four verses later he writes, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behaviour. So it seems then that the Bible teaches that anger is such a dangerous emotion that we should do all we can to avoid it. Now let's go back to my story about how my anger leads to Mabel's anger. I've always felt that it was okay to get angry as a result of frustrations as long as I didn't take it out on a person. And to be honest, I wanted to believe that it was basically Mabel's problem that she got angry when I was just blowing off steam. That's just being honest. But it's pretty clear now from God's word that my anger is totally inappropriate. I'm not being slow to anger and my words and attitude are leading Mabel into temptation. It's wrong to cause someone to stumble. And so, as Proverbs predicts, my anger has caused conflict and sin. And we see the same problem writ large in our world today. If you've turned on your TV in the last couple of weeks, you will undoubtedly have seen destruction caused by rioters and looters in America. 
Greg Sheridan in the Australian newspaper explains the source of this violence. He says, The ideology of systemic racism condemns the power structure. The problem becomes the system, not aspects of the system that need reform. Herein lies the essential problem. Once you accept critical race theory, that racism is everywhere and permeates everything, you create an end goal that will never be realised, but delivers endless anger. We see this endless anger at work also in France, this time caused by economic injustice. It's expressed in the violence accompanying the Yellow Vest protests that have racked France for several years. Now, there are genuine problems here, evils that we should be deeply concerned about. The problem is that we choose to react to these genuine evils by getting angry, and that anger causes conflict and gives opportunity to the devil. It doesn't solve the problems, but often it just makes them worse. But what are we to do instead? What can replace anger? We can't ignore injustice or racism or oppression or even frustration. We live in a world where the system, the world itself, really has been corrupted. How should we react to that? Remember two weeks ago we talked about grief and sadness. I quoted the Apostle Paul then. He said, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And it goes on to say that we groan with it as well. What if grief, groaning together, is the appropriate response to injustice? What if sorrow is the appropriate response to frustration? After all, grief and sorrow do not leave us unmoved. No, they, they move us to heal, to repair, to fix what is deeply broken. While anger is highly likely to lead to the destruction of that which we value, sorrow can lead to hope. If I take my frustrations and instead of angrily blowing off steam, I lament, ah, why do computers have to be so pathetic? Is that better? It certainly won't tempt Mabel to get angry. How can she get angry at somebody for being sad? I wouldn't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't believe you. If, I don't get angry at <laughs> No, of course she doesn't. 
if a driver if a driver cuts me off and I am sad for them and their passengers instead of cursing them, isn't that better? It even makes me more likely to drive safely instead of driving dangerously in my anger. If someone on social media is stupid or nasty or even both, as if that would ever happen, isn't it better for me to express gentle sadness rather than bitter anger? If my child, who's sitting there saying strange stuff to me, deliberately disobeys a direct and reasonable instruction and I feel grief over their willful disobedience rather than flying into a rage, isn't that better for them, for me, and for our relationship? Doesn't it protect them from me lashing out in anger? Doesn't it move them through sympathy to be more likely to obey? It's not a guarantee, but surely it's better. It certainly is not good for us to respond to terrible things with apathy. Injustice, racism, rebellion, destruction, malice and so on. These must not leave us unmoved. But what if grief is a better motive for change and healing than anger? What if what if that is the message of the Bible on anger? What if God is asking us to grieve with him and so to heal the world? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. That is the primary foundation of your relationship with us. And because you love us, when we rebel against you, you mourn. When Adam and Eve defied you, when they set themselves up as little gods, you didn't lash out in anger. Instead, you mourned. And it's... It's... The, the the first the end of the the first era of the world is in a flood almost as if you were crying your tears filled the world but Lord we recognize that you do have anger that the fire of your anger will consume those who prevent you from bringing them back into relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to be able to see when anger is called for, that very rare occasion, and give us the strength and the love to be able to respond to frustrations and injustice and and hurt and destructiveness and malice with grief and mourning and sadness that motivates us to be peacemakers to be lovers to be healers 
to do your work in this world. You did not call us to be destroyers, Lord, to burn down the system. You did not call the church to judge the world. You called us to rescue the world. And so we pray that you would give us the right attitude, that you would help us to respond to the wickedness of the world with deep sadness, motivated by that to change the world, to change the people, to save our neighbours, our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.